Chapter Seven of the Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Seven: Madame Imbert's Safe. At three o'clock in the morning, there were still half a dozen carriages in front of one of those small houses which form only the side of the Boulevard Berthier. The door of that house opened, and a number of guests, male and female, emerged. The majority of them entered their carriages and were quickly driven away, leaving behind only two men who walked down Courcelles, where they parted, as one of them lived in that street. The other decided to return on foot as far as the Porte Maillot. It was a beautiful winter's night, clear and cold, a night on which a brisk walk is agreeable and refreshing but at the end of a few minutes he had the disagreeable impression that he was being followed. Turning around he saw a man skulking amongst the trees. He was not a coward, yet he felt it advisable to increase his speed. Then his pursuer commenced to run, and he deemed it prudent to draw his revolver and face him. But he had no time. The man rushed at him and attacked him violently. Immediately they were engaged in a desperate struggle, wherein he felt that his unknown assailant had the advantage. He called for help, struggled, and was thrown down on a pile of gravel, seized by the throat, and gagged with a handkerchief that his assailant forced into his mouth. His eyes closed, and the man who was smothering him with his weight arose to defend himself against an unexpected attack. A blow from a cane and a kick from a boot. The man uttered two cries of pain and fled, limping and cursing. Without deigning to pursue the fugitive, the new arrival stooped over the prostrate man and inquired, "'Are you hurt, monsieur?' He was not injured, but he was dazed and unable to stand. His rescuer procured a carriage, placed him in it, and accompanied him to his house on the Avenue de la Grande Armée. On his arrival there, quite recovered, he overwhelmed his saviour with thanks. "'I owe you my life, monsieur, and I shall not forget it. I do not wish to alarm my wife at this time of night, but to-morrow she will be pleased to thank you personally. Come and breakfast with us. My name is Ludovic Imbert. May I ask yours? Certainly, monsieur. And he handed monsieur Imbert a card bearing the name Arsène Lupin. At that time, Arsène Lupin did not enjoy the celebrity which the Caron affair, his escape from the prison de la Santé, and other brilliant exploits afterwards gained for him. He had not even used the name of Arsène Lupin. The name was specially invented to designate the rescuer of M. Imbert. That is to say, it was in that affair that Arsène Lupin was baptized. Fully armed and ready for the fray, it is true, but lacking the resources and authority which command success, Arsène Lupin was then merely an apprentice in a profession wherein he soon became a master. With what a thrill of joy he recalled the invitation he received that night. At last he had reached his goal. At last he had undertaken a task worthy of his strength and skill. The Imbert millions! What a magnificent feast for an appetite like his! He prepared a special toilet for that occasion. A shabby frock-coat, baggy trousers, a frayed silk hat, well-worn collar and cuffs, all quite correct in form, but bearing the unmistakable stamp of poverty. His cravat was a black ribbon pinned with a false diamond. Thus accoutred, he descended the stairs of the house in which he lived at Montmartre, 
at the third floor without stopping he rapped on a closed door with the head of his cane he walked to the exterior boulevards a tram-car was passing he boarded it and someone who had been following him took a seat beside him it was the lodger who occupied the room on the third floor a moment later this man said to lupin well governor well it is all fixed how i am going there to breakfast you breakfast there certainly why not i rescued m ludovic imbert from certain death at your hands m imbert is not devoid of gratitude he invited me to breakfast there was a brief silence then the other said but you are not going to throw up the scheme my dear boy said lupin when i arranged that little case of assault and battery when i took the treble at three o'clock in the morning to rap you with my cane and tap you with my boot at the risk of injuring my only friend it was not my intention to forego the advantages to be gained from a rescue so well arranged and executed oh no not at all but the strange rumours we hear about their fortune never mind about that for six months i have worked on this affair investigated it studied it questioned the servants the money-lenders and men of straw for six months i have shadowed the husband and wife consequently i know what i am talking about whether the fortune came to them from old brawford as they pretend or from some other source i do not care i know that it is a reality that it exists and some day it will be mine big one hundred millions let us say ten or even five that is enough they have a safe full of bonds and there will be the devil to pay if I can't get my hands on them. The tram-car stopped at the Place de l'Etoile. The man whispered to Lupin, What am I to do now? Nothing at present. You will hear from me. There is no hurry. Five minutes later, Arsène Lupin was ascending the magnificent flight of stairs in the Imbert mansion, and M. Imbert introduced him to his wife. Madame Gervaise Imbert was a short, plump woman, and very talkative she gave lupin a cordial welcome i desired that we should be alone to entertain our saviour she said from the outset they treated our saviour as an old and valued friend by the time dessert was served their friendship was well cemented and private confidences were being exchanged arsene related the story of his life the life of his father as a magistrate the sorrows of his childhood and his present difficulties gervaise in turn spoke of her youth her marriage the kindness of the aged brawford the hundred millions that she had inherited the obstacles that prevented her from obtaining the enjoyment of her inheritance the money she had been obliged to borrow at an exorbitant rate of interest her endless contentions with brawford's nephews and the litigation the injunctions in fact everything just think of it monsieur lupin the bonds are there in my husband's office and if we detach a single coupon we lose everything they are there in our safe and we dare not touch them m lupin shivered at the bare idea of his proximity to so much wealth yet he felt quite certain that m lupin would never suffer from the same difficulty as his fair hostess who declared she dare not touch the money ah oh, they are there he repeated to himself they are there a friendship formed under such circumstances soon led to closer relations when discreetly questioned arsene lupin confessed his poverty and distress 
Immediately the unfortunate young man was appointed private secretary to the Imberts, husband and wife, at a salary of one hundred francs a month. He was to come to the house every day, and receive orders for his work, and a room on the second floor was set apart as his office. This room was directly over M. Imbert's office. Arsène soon realized that his position as secretary was essentially a sinecure. During the first two months he had only four important letters to recopy, and was called only once to M. Imbert's office. Consequently, he had only one opportunity to contemplate, officially, the Imbert safe. Moreover, he noticed that the secretary was not invited to the social functions of the employer. But he did not complain, as he preferred to remain modestly in the shade and maintain his peace and freedom. However, he was not wasting any time. From the beginning he made clandestine visits to M. Imbert's office, and paid his respects to the safe, which was hermetically closed. It was an immense block of iron and steel, cold and stern in appearance, which could not be forced open by the ordinary tools of the burglar's trade. But Arsène Lupin was not discouraged. "'Where force fails, cunning prevails,' he said to himself. The essential thing is to be on the spot when the opportunity occurs. In the meantime, I must watch and wait. He made immediately some preliminary preparations. After careful soundings made upon the floor of his room, he introduced a lead pipe, which penetrated the ceiling of M. Imbert's office at a point between the two screeds of the cornice. By means of this pipe, he hoped to see and hear what transpired in the room below. Henceforth he passed his days stretched at full length upon the floor. He frequently saw the Imberts holding a consultation in front of the safe, investigating books and papers. When they turned the combination lock, he tried to learn the figures and the number of turns they made to the right and left. He watched their movements, he sought to catch their words. There was also a key necessary to complete the opening of the safe. What did they do with it? Did they hide it? One day he saw them leave the room without locking the safe. He descended the stairs quickly and boldly entered the room. But they had returned. "'Oh, excuse me,' he said. "'I made a mistake in the door.' "'Come in, Monsieur Lupin, come in,' cried Madame Imbert. "'Are you not at home here? We want your advice. What bonds should we sell? The foreign securities or the government annuities?' "'But the injunction,' said Lupin with surprise. Oh, it doesn't cover all the bonds. She opened the door of the safe and withdrew a package of bonds, but her husband protested. No, no, Gervaise, it would be foolish to sell the foreign bonds. They are going up, whilst the annuities are as high as they ever will be. What do you think, my dear friend? The dear friend had no opinion, yet he advised the sacrifice of the annuities. Then she withdrew another package, and from it she took a paper at random. It proved to be a three percent annuity worth two thousand francs. Ludovic placed the package of bonds in his pocket. That afternoon, accompanied by his secretary, he sold the annuities to a stockbroker and realized forty-six thousand francs. Whatever Madame Imbert might have said about it, Arsène Lupin did not feel at home in the Imbert house. On the contrary, his position there was a peculiar one. He learned that the servants did not even know his name. They called him Monsieur. Ludovic always spoke of him in the same way. You will tell Monsieur. Has Monsieur arrived? Why that mysterious appellation? Moreover, after their first outburst of enthusiasm, 
the Hébert seldom spoke to him, and although treating him with the consideration due to a benefactor, they gave him little or no attention. They appeared to regard him as an eccentric character who did not like to be disturbed, and they respected his isolation as if it were a stringent rule on his part. On one occasion, while passing through the vestibule, he heard Madame Hébert say to the two gentlemen, "'Such a barbarian!' "'Very well,' he said to himself, "'I am a barbarian.' And without seeking to solve the question of their strange conduct, he proceeded with the execution of his own plans. He had decided that he could not depend on chance, nor on the negligence of Madame Hébert, who carried the key of the safe, and who, unlocking the safe, invariably scattered the letters forming the combination of the lock. Consequently, he must act for himself. Finally, an incident precipitated matters. It was the vehement campaign instituted against the Imberts by certain newspapers that accused the Imberts of swindling. Arsène Lupin was present at certain family conferences when this new vicissitude was discussed. He decided that if he waited much longer, he would lose everything. During the next five days, instead of leaving the house about six o'clock, according to his usual habit, he locked himself in his room. It was supposed that he had gone out but he was lying on the floor, surveying the office of M. Imbert. During those five evenings, the favourable opportunity that he awaited did not take place. He left the house about midnight by a side door to which he held the key. But on the sixth day, he learned that the Imberts, actuated by the malevolent insinuations of their enemies, proposed to make an inventory of the contents of the safe. They will do it to-night, thought Lupin and truly, after dinner, Imbert and his wife retired to the office and commenced to examine the books of account and the securities contained in the safe. Thus one hour after another passed away. He heard the servants go upstairs to their rooms. No one now remained on the first floor. Midnight, the Imberts were still at work. "'I must get to work,' murmured Lupin. He opened his window. It opened on a court outside everything was dark and quiet. He took from his desk a knotted rope, fastened it to the balcony in front of his window, and quietly descended as far as the window below, which was that of the Imbert's office. He stood upon the balcony for a moment, motionless, with attentive ear and watchful eye, but the heavy curtains effectually concealed the interior of the room. He cautiously pushed on the double window. If no one had examined it, it ought to yield to the slightest pressure, for during the afternoon he had so fixed the bolt that it would not enter the staple. The window yielded to his touch. Then, with infinite care, he pushed it open sufficiently to admit his head. He parted the curtains a few inches, looked in, and saw M. Imbert and his wife sitting in front of the safe, deeply absorbed in their work and speaking softly to each other at rare intervals. He calculated the distance between him and them considered the exact movements he would require to make in order to overcome them one after the other before they could call for help and he was about to rush upon them when madame Imbert said ah oh, the room is getting quite cold i am going to bed and you my dear i shall stay and finish finish why that will take you all night not at all an hour at the most she retired twenty minutes thirty minutes passed Arsène pushed the window a little farther open. The curtains shook. He pushed once more. M. Imbert turned, and seeing the curtains blown by the wind, he rose to close the window. There was not a cry, not the trace of struggle. 
with a few precise movements and without causing him the least injury arsène stunned him wrapped the curtain about his head bound him hand and foot and did it all in such a manner that m imbert had no opportunity to recognize his assailant quickly he approached the safe seized two packages that he placed under his arm left the office and opened the servant's gate a carriage was stationed in the street take that first and follow me he said to the coachman he returned to the office and in two trips they emptied the safe then arsène went to his own room removed the rope and all other traces of his clandestine work a few hours later arsène lupin and his assistant examined the stolen goods lupin was not disappointed as he had foreseen that the wealth of the imberts had been greatly exaggerated it did not consist of hundreds of millions nor even tens of millions yet it amounted to a very respectable sum and lupin expressed his satisfaction of course he said there will be a considerable loss when we come to sell the bonds as we will have to dispose of them surreptitiously at reduced prices in the meantime they will rest quietly in my desk awaiting a propitious moment arsène saw no reason why he should not go to the imbert house the next day but a perusal of the morning papers revealed this startling fact ludovitch and gervaise imbert had disappeared when the officers of the law seized the safe and opened it they found there what arsène lupin had left nothing such are the facts and i learned the sequel to them one day when arsène lupin was in a confidential mood he was pacing to and fro in my room with a nervous step and a feverish eye that were unusual to him after all i said to him it was your most successful venture without making a direct reply he said there are some impenetrable secrets connected with that affair some obscure points that escape my comprehension for instance what caused their flight why did they not take advantage of the help i unconsciously gave them it would have been so simple to say the hundred millions were in the safe they are no longer there because they have been stolen they lost their nerve yes that is it they lost their nerve on the other hand it is true what is true oh nothing what was the meaning of lupin's reticence it was quite obvious that he had not told me everything there was something he was loath to tell his conduct puzzled me it must indeed be a very serious matter to cause such a man as arsène lupin even a momentary hesitation i threw out a few questions at random have you seen them since no and have you never experienced the slightest degree of pity for those unfortunate people i he exclaimed with a start his sudden excitement astonished me and i touched him on a sore spot i continued of course if you had not left them alone they might have been able to face the danger or at least made their escape with full pockets what do you mean he said indignantly i suppose you have an idea that my soul should be filled with remorse call it remorse or regrets anything you like they are not worth it have you no regrets or remorse for having stolen their fortune what fortune the packages of bonds you took from their safe oh i stole their bonds did i i deprived them of a portion of their wealth is that my crime oh, my dear boy you do not know the truth you never imagined that those bonds were not worth the paper they were written on those bonds were false they were counterfeit every one of them do you understand they were counterfeit 
I looked at him astounded. Counterfeit! The four or five millions? Yes, counterfeit! he exclaimed in a fit of rage. Only so many scraps of paper. I couldn't have raised a sou on the whole of them. And you ask me if I have any remorse. They are the ones who should have remorse and pity. They played me for a simpleton, and I fell into their trap. I was their latest victim, their most stupid gull. He was affected by genuine anger, the result of malice and wounded pride. He continued, From start to finish I got the worst of it. Do you know the part I played in that affair, or rather the part they made me play? That of André Brawford. Yes, my dear boy, that is the truth, and I never suspected it. It was not until afterwards, on reading the newspapers, that the light finally dawned in my stupid brain. Whilst I was posing as his saviour, as the gentleman who had risked his life to rescue M. Imbert from the clutches of an assassin, they were passing me off as Brawford. Wasn't that splendid? That eccentric individual who had a room on the second floor, that barbarian that was exhibited only at a distance, was Brawford, and Brawford was I. Thanks to me, and to the confidence that I inspired under the name of Brawford, they were enabled to borrow money from the bankers and other money-lenders. Ha! <laughs> what an experience for a novice! And I swear to you that I shall profit by the lesson. He stopped, seized my arm, and said to me in a tone of exasperation, My dear fellow, at this very moment, Gervais Imbert owes me fifteen hundred francs. I could not refrain from laughter, his rage was so grotesque. He was making a mountain out of a molehill. In a moment he laughed himself and said, Yes, my boy, fifteen hundred francs. You must know that I had not received one sou of my promised salary. And more than that, she had borrowed from me the sum of fifteen hundred francs. Oh, my youthful savings! And you know why? To devote the money to charity. I'm giving you a straight story. She wanted it for some poor people she was assisting, unknown to her husband, and my hard-earned money was wormed out of me by that silly pretense. Isn't it amusing, eh? Arsène Lupin done out of fifteen hundred francs by the fair lady from whom he stole four millions in counterfeit bonds. What a vast amount of time and patience and cunning I expended to achieve that result. It was the first time in my life that I was played for a fool, and I frankly confess that I was fooled that time to the Queen's taste. End of chapter 7Chapter 8 of The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 8 The Black Pearl. A violent ringing of the bell awakened the concierge of number 9, Avenue Hoche. She pulled the door string, grumbling. I thought everybody was in. Must be three o'clock. Perhaps it is someone for the doctor, muttered her husband. Third floor left, but the doctor won't go out at night. He must go to-night. The visitor entered the vestibule, ascended to the first floor, the second, the third, and without stopping at the doctor's door, he continued to the fifth floor. There he tried two keys. One of them fitted the lock. Ah! Oh, good he muttered that simplifies the business wonderfully but before i commence work i had better arrange for my retreat 
let me see have i had sufficient time to rouse the doctor and be dismissed by him not yet a few minutes more at the end of ten minutes he descended the stairs grumbling noisily about the doctor the concierge opened the door for him and heard it click behind him but the door did not lock as the man had quickly inserted a piece of iron in the lock in such a manner that the bolt could not enter then quietly he entered the house again unknown to the concierge in case of alarm his retreat was assured noiselessly he ascended to the fifth floor once more in the antechamber by the light of his electric lantern he placed his hat and overcoat on one of the chairs took a seat on another and covered his heavy shoes with felt slippers Oof, here i am and how simple it was i wonder why more people do not adopt the profitable and pleasant occupation of burglar with a little care and reflection it becomes a most delightful profession not too quiet and monotonous of course as it would then become wearisome he unfolded a detailed plan of the apartment let me commence by locating myself here i see the vestibule in which i am sitting on the street front the drawing-room the boudoir and dining-room useless to waste any time there as it appears that the countess has a deplorable taste not a bibelot of any value now let's get down to business ah here is a corridor it must lead to the bedchambers at a distance of three metres i should come to the door of the wardrobe closet which connects with the chamber of the countess he folded his plan extinguished his lantern and proceeded down the corridor counting his distance thus one metre two metres three metres here is the door oh, Dieu, how easy it is only a small simple bolt now separates me from the chamber and i know that the bolt is located exactly one metre forty-three centimetres from the floor so that thanks to a small incision i am about to make i can soon get rid of the bolt he drew from his pocket the necessary instruments then the following idea occurred to him suppose by chance the door is not bolted i will try it first he turned the knob and the door opened my brave lupin surely fortune favours you what's to be done now you know the situation of the rooms you know the place in which the countess hides the black pearl therefore in order to secure the black pearl you have simply to be more silent than silence more invisible than darkness itself arsene lupin was employed fully a half hour in opening the second door a glass door that led to the countess's bedchamber but he accomplished it with so much skill and precaution that even had the countess been awake she would not have heard the slightest sound according to the plan of the rooms that he holds he has merely to pass around a reclining chair and beyond that a small table close to the bed on the table there was a box of letter-paper and the black pearl was concealed in that box he stooped and crept cautiously over the carpet following the outlines of the reclining chair when he reached the extremity of it he stopped in order to repress the throbbing of his heart although he was not moved by any sense of fear he found it impossible to overcome the nervous anxiety that one usually feels in the midst of profound silence that circumstance astonished him because he had passed through many more solemn moments without the slightest trace of emotion 
no danger threatened him then why did his heart throb like an alarm-bell was it that sleeping woman who affected him was it the proximity of another pulsating heart he listened and thought he could discern the rhythmical breathing of a person asleep it gave him confidence like the presence of a friend he sought and found the armchair then by slow cautious movements advanced toward the table feeling ahead of him with outstretched arm his right had touched one of the feet of the table ah now he had simply to rise take the pearl and escape that was fortunate as his heart was leaping in his breast like a wild beast and made so much noise that he feared it would waken the countess by a powerful effort of the will he subdued the wild throbbing of his heart and was about to rise from the floor when his left hand encountered lying on the floor an object which he recognized as a candlestick an overturned candlestick a moment later his hand encountered another object a clock one of those small travelling clocks covered with leather well what had happened he could not understand that candlestick that clock why were those articles not in their accustomed places ah oh, what had happened in the dread silence of the night suddenly a cry escaped him he had touched oh some strange unutterable thing no no he thought it cannot be it is some fancy of my excited brain for twenty seconds thirty seconds he remained motionless terrified his forehead bathed with perspiration and his fingers still retained the sensation of that dreadful contact making a desperate effort he ventured to extend his arm again once more his hand encountered that strange unutterable thing felt it he must feel it and find out what it is he found that it was hair human hair and a human face and that face was cold almost icy however frightful the circumstances may be a man like arsène lupin controls himself and commands the situation as soon as he learns what it is so arsène lupin quickly brought his lantern into use a woman was lying before him covered with blood her neck and shoulders were covered with gaping wounds he leaned over her and made a closer examination she was dead 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 he repeated with a bewildered air he stared at those fixed eyes that grim mouth that livid flesh and that blood all that blood which had flowed over the carpet and congealed there in thick black spots he arose and turned on the electric lights then he beheld all the marks of a desperate struggle the bed was in a state of great disorder on the floor the candlestick and the clock with the hands pointing to twenty minutes after eleven then further away an overturned chair and everywhere there was blood spots of blood and pools of blood and the black pearl he murmured the box of letter-paper was in its place he opened it eagerly the jewel-case was there but it was empty Victor, he muttered you boasted of your good fortune much too soon my friend lupin with the countess lying cold and dead and the black pearl vanished 
the situation is anything but pleasant get out of here as soon as you can or you may get into serious trouble yet he did not move get out of here yes of course any person would except arsene lupin he has something better to do now to proceed in an orderly way at all events you have a clear conscience let us suppose that you are the commissary of police and that you are proceeding to make an inquiry concerning this affair yes but in order to do that i require a clearer brain mine is muddled like a ragout he tumbled into an armchair with his clenched hands pressed against his burning forehead the murder of the avenue hoche is one of those which have recently surprised and puzzled the parisian public and certainly i should never have mentioned the affair if the veil of mystery had not been removed by arsene lupin himself no one knew the exact truth of the case who did not know from having met her in the bois the fair leotine zalti the once famous cantatrice wife and widow of the count d'andiot the zalti whose luxury dazzled all paris some twenty years ago the zalti who acquired a european reputation for the magnificence of her diamonds and pearls it was said that she wore upon her shoulders the capital of several banking-houses and the gold-mines of numerous australian companies skilful jewellers worked for zalti as they had formerly wrought for kings and queens and who does not remember the catastrophe in which all that wealth was swallowed up of all that marvellous collection nothing remained except the famous black pearl the black pearl that is to say a fortune if she had wished to part with it but she preferred to keep it to live in a commonplace apartment with her companion her cook and a man-servant rather than sell that inestimable jewel there was a reason for it a reason she was not afraid to disclose the black pearl was the gift of an emperor almost ruined and reduced to the most mediocre existence she remained faithful to the companion of her happy and brilliant youth the black pearl never left her possession she wore it during the day and at night concealed it in a place known to her alone all these facts being republished in the columns of the public press served to stimulate curiosity and strange to say but quite obvious to those who have the key to the mystery the arrest of the presumed assassin only complicated the question and prolonged the excitement two days later the newspapers published the following item information has reached us of the arrest of victor d'anègre the servant of the countess d'andiot the evidence against him is clear and convincing on the silken sleeve of his liveried waistcoat which chief detective dudouis found in his garret between the mattresses of his bed several spots of blood were discovered in addition a cloth-covered button was missing from that garment and this button was found beneath the bed of the victim it is supposed that after dinner in place of going to his own room d'anègre slipped into the wardrobe closet and through the glass door had seen the countess hide the precious black pearl this is simply a theory as yet unverified by any evidence there is also another obscure point at seven o'clock in the morning d'anègre went to the tobacco shop on the boulevard de courcelles the concierge and the shopkeeper both affirm this fact on the other hand the countess's companion and cook 
who sleep at the end of the hall, both declare that when they arose at eight o'clock, the door of the antechamber and the door of the kitchen were locked. These two persons have been in the service of the countess for twenty years, and are above suspicion. The question is, how did Danègre leave the apartment? Did he have another key? These are matters that the police will investigate. As a matter of fact, the police investigation threw no light on the mystery. It was learned that Victor Danègre was a dangerous criminal, a drunkard and a debauchee. But as they proceeded with the investigation, the mystery deepened and new complications arose. In the first place, a young woman, Mademoiselle de Saint-Clève, the cousin and sole heiress of the countess, declared that the countess, a month before her death, had written a letter to her, and in it described the manner in which the black pearl was concealed. The letter disappeared the day after she received it. Who had stolen it? Again the concierge related how she had opened the door for a person who had inquired for Dr. Arel. On being questioned, the doctor testified that no one had rung his bell. Then who was that person? An accomplice? The theory of an accomplice was thereupon adopted by the press and public, and also by Ganimard, the famous detective. Lupin's at the bottom of this affair, he said to the judge. Bah! exclaimed the judge. You have Lupin on the brain. You see him everywhere. I see him everywhere because he is everywhere. Say rather that you see him every time you encounter something you cannot explain. Besides, you overlooked the fact that the crime was committed at twenty minutes past eleven in the evening, as is shown by the clock while the nocturnal visit mentioned by the concierge occurred at three o'clock in the morning officers of the law frequently form a hasty conviction as to the guilt of a suspected person and then distort all subsequent discoveries to conform to their established theory the deplorable antecedents of victor danègre habitual criminal drunkard and rake influenced the judge and despite the fact that nothing new was discovered in cooperation of the early clues his official opinion remained firm and unshaken he closed his investigation and a few weeks later the trial commenced it proved to be slow and tedious the judge was listless and the public prosecutor presented the case in a careless manner under those circumstances danègre's counsel had an easy task he pointed out the defects and inconsistencies of the case for the prosecution, and argued that the evidence was quite insufficient to convict the accused. Who had made the key, the indispensable key without which Danègre, on leaving the apartment, could not have locked the door behind him? Who had ever seen such a key, and what had become of it? Who had seen the assassin's knife, and where is it now? In any event argued the prisoner's counsel, the prosecution must prove beyond any reasonable doubt that the prisoner committed the murder. The prosecution must show that the mysterious individual who entered the house at three o'clock in the morning is not the guilty party. To be sure, the clock indicated eleven o'clock. But what of that? I contend that proves nothing. The assassin could turn the hands of the clock to any hour he pleased, and thus deceive us in regard to the exact hour of the crime." Victor Danègre was acquitted. He left the prison on Friday about dusk in the evening, weak and depressed by his six months' imprisonment. The Inquisition, the solitude, the trial, the deliberations of the jury combined to fill him with a nervous fear. 
At night he had been afflicted with terrible nightmares and haunted by weird visions of the scaffold. He was a mental and physical wreck. Under the assumed name of Anatole Dufour, he rented a small room on the heights of Montmartre and lived by doing odd jobs wherever he could find them. He led a pitiful existence. Three times he obtained regular employment, only to be recognized and then discharged. Sometimes he had an idea that men were following him, detectives, no doubt, who were seeking to trap and denounce him. He could almost feel the strong hand of the law clutching him by the collar. One evening, as he was eating his dinner at a neighboring restaurant, a man entered and took a seat at the same table. He was a person about forty years of age, and wore a frock-coat of doubtful cleanliness. He ordered soup, vegetables, and a bottle of wine. After he had finished his soup, he turned his eyes on Danègre, and gazed at him intently. Danègre winced. He was certain that this was one of the men who had been following him for several weeks. What did he want? Danègre tried to rise, but failed. His limbs refused to support him. The man poured himself a glass of wine, and then filled Danègre's glass. The man raised his glass and said, To your health, Victor Danègre. Victor startled in alarm and stammered, I... I... No, no, I swear to you. You will swear what? That you are not yourself? The servant of the countess? What servant? My name is Dufour. Ask the proprietor. Yes, Anatole Dufour to the proprietor of this restaurant, but Victor Danègre to the officers of the law. Oh, that's not true. Someone has lied to you. The newcomer took a card from his pocket and handed it to Victor, who read on it, Grimaudin, ex-inspector of the detective force, private business transacted. Victor shuddered as he said, You are connected with the police? No, not now, but I have a liking for the business, and I continue to work at it in a manner more profitable. From time to time I strike upon a golden opportunity, such as your case presents. My case? Yes, yours. I assure you it is a most promising affair, provided you are inclined to be reasonable. But if I am not reasonable? Oh, my good fellow, you are not in a position to refuse me anything I may ask. What is it you want? stammered Victor, fearfully. Well, I will inform you in a few words. I am sent by Mademoiselle de Saint-Clèves, the heiress of the Countess d'Andiot. What for? To recover the black pearl. Black pearl? That you stole? But I haven't got it. You have it. If I had, then I would be the assassin. You are the assassin. Danègre showed a forced smile. Fortunately for me, monsieur, the Assise Court was not of your opinion. The jury returned a unanimous verdict of acquittal, and when a man has a clear conscience and twelve good men in his favour... The ex-inspector seized him by the arm and said, No fine phrases, my boy. Now listen to me, and weigh my words carefully. You will find they are worthy of your consideration. 
now deneg three weeks before the murder you abstracted the cook's key to the servant's door and had a duplicate key made by a locksmith named outard two forty four rue oberkampf it's a lie it's a lie growled victor no person has seen that key there is no such key here it is after a silence grimaudin continued you killed the countess with a knife purchased by you at the bazaar de la république on the same day as you ordered the duplicate key it has a triangular blade with a groove running from end to end that is all nonsense you are simply guessing at something you don't know no one ever saw the knife here it is victor danègre recoiled the ex-inspector continued there are some spots of rust upon it shall i tell you how they came there well you have a key and a knife who can prove that they belong to me the locksmith and the clerk from whom you bought the knife i have already refreshed their memories and when you confront them they cannot fail to recognize them his speech was dry and hard with a tone of firmness and precision danègre was trembling with fear and yet he struggled desperately to maintain an air of indifference. Is that all the evidence you have? Oh, no, not at all. I have plenty more. For instance, after the crime, you went out the same way you had entered. But in the centre of the wardrobe room, being seized by some sudden fear, you leaned against the wall for support. How do you know that? No one could know such a thing, argued the desperate man. The police know nothing about it, of course. They never think of lighting a candle and examining the walls. But if they had done so, they would have found on the white plaster a faint red spot, quite distinct, however, to trace it in the imprint of your thumb which you had pressed against the wall while it was wet with blood. Now, as you are well aware, under the Bertillon system, thumb marks are one of the principal means of identification." Victor Danègue was livid. Great drops of perspiration rolled down his face and fell upon the table. He gazed with a wild look at the strange man who had narrated the story of his crime as faithfully as if he had been an invisible witness to it. Overcome and powerless, Victor bowed his head. He felt that it was useless to struggle against this marvellous man. So he said, "'How much will you give me if I give you the pearl?' nothing <laughs> you are joking or do you mean that i should give you an article worth thousands and hundreds of thousands and get nothing in return you will get your life is that nothing the unfortunate man shuddered then grimaudin added in a milder tone come Daneg, that pearl has no value in your hands it is quite impossible for you to sell it so what is the use of your keeping it there are pawnbrokers and some day i will be able to get something for it but that day may be too late why because by that time you may be in the hands of the police and with the evidence that i can furnish the knife the key the thumb mark what will become of you victor rested his head on his hands and reflected he felt that he was lost irremediably lost and at the same time a sense of weariness and oppression overcame him he murmured faintly when must i give it to you to-night 
within an hour if i refuse if you refuse i shall post this letter to the procureur of the republic in which letter mademoiselle de saint cleve denounces you as the assassin the nègre poured out two glasses of wine which he drank in rapid succession then rising said pay the bill and let us go i have had enough of the cursed affair night had fallen the two men walked down the rue le pic and followed the exterior boulevards in the direction of the place de l'etoile they pursued their way in silence victor had a stooping carriage and a dejected face when they reached the parc monceau he said we are near the house parbleu you only left the house once before your arrest and that was to go to the tobacco shop here it is said Daneg in a dull voice they passed along the garden wall of the countess's house and crossed a street on a corner of which stood the tobacco shop a few steps further on Daneg stopped his limbs shook beneath him and he sank to a bench well what now demanded his companion it is there where come now no nonsense there in front of us where between two paving-stones which look for it which stones victor made no reply ah i see exclaimed grimaudin you want me to pay for the information no but i am afraid i will starve to death so that is why you hesitate well i'll not be hard on you how much do you want enough to buy a steerage pass to america all right and a hundred francs to keep me until i get work there you shall have two hundred now speak count the paving stones to the right from the sewer hole the pearl is in between the twelfth and thirteenth in the gutter yes close to the sidewalk grimaudin glanced around to see if any one were looking some tramcars and pedestrians were passing but they will not suspect anything he opened his pocket-knife and thrust it between the twelfth and thirteenth stones and if it is not there he said to victor it must be there unless someone saw me stoop down and hide it could it be possible that the black pearl had been cast into the mud and filth of the gutter to be picked up by the first comer the black pearl a fortune how far down he asked about ten centimetres he dug up the wet earth the point of his knife struck something he enlarged the hole with his finger then he abstracted the black pearl from its filthy hiding-place Good here are your two hundred francs i will send you the ticket for america on the following day this article was published in the echo de france and was copied by the leading newspapers throughout the world yesterday the famous black pearl came into the possession of arsene lupin who recovered it from the murderer of the countess d'andiot in a short time facsimiles of that precious jewel will be exhibited in london st petersburg calcutta buenos aires and new york arsene lupin will be pleased to consider all propositions submitted to him through his agents and that is how crime is always punished and virtue rewarded said arsene lupin 
after he had told me the foregoing history of the black pearl and that is how you under the assumed name of grimaudin ex-inspector of detectives were chosen by fate to deprive the criminal of the benefit of his crime exactly and i confess that the affair gives me infinite satisfaction and pride the forty minutes that i passed in the apartment of the countess d'andillot after learning of her death were the most thrilling and absorbing moments of my life in those forty minutes involved as i was in a most dangerous plight i calmly studied the scene of the murder and reached the conclusion that the crime must have been committed by one of the house-servants i also decided that in order to get the pearl that servant must be arrested and so i left the wainscoat button it was necessary also for me to hold some convincing evidence of his guilt so i carried away the knife which i found upon the floor and the key which i found in the lock i closed and locked the door and erased the finger-marks from the plaster in the wardrobe closet in my opinion that was one of those flashes of genius i said interrupting of genius if you wish but i flatter myself it would not have occurred to the average mortal to frame instantly the two elements of the problem an arrest and an acquittal to make use of the formidable machinery of the law to crush and humble my victim and reduce him to a condition in which when free he would be certain to fall into the trap i was laying for him poor devil poor devil do you say victor danègre the assassin he might have descended to the lowest depths of vice and crime if he had retained the black pearl now he lives think of that victor danègre is alive and you have the black pearl he took it out of one of the secret pockets of his wallet examined it gazed at it tenderly and caressed it with loving fingers and sighed as he said what cold russian prince what vain and foolish rajah may some day possess this priceless treasure or perhaps some american millionaire is destined to become the owner of this morsel of exquisite beauty that once adorned the fair bosom of leontine zalti the countess d'andiot end of chapter eight bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then place a five dollar wager on any sport you'll receive 150 dollars in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome and if you think the fun stops there the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store check out daily promotions same game parlays live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc